The case is submitted. We'll hear argument next to number 9256, G. Russell, Russell Chambers versus NASCO. Mr. Barham, you may proceed whenever you're ready. Mr. Chief Justice, uh, may it please the court. This, or the issues for this court, arise out of a suit for a specific performance for breach of contract uh, in a federal court in Louisiana. A Louisiana resident owned a television station in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and there was a contract to purchase on that station. Uh, there was a non-resident purchaser, and that non-resident purchaser filed suit in federal court under diversity jurisdiction to enforce by specific performance the contract. The Louisiana Civil Code provides uh, for the uh, concepts of breach of contract and also for the remedies for breach of contract, including specific performance or damages, or specific performance and damages, or specific performance with delay damages. Uh, the damages in Louisiana are economic damages. We do not have punitive damages, and the only damages allowed are for economic loss. Uh, they, the Louisiana prohibits attorney's fees unless they're specially provided for either in the legislation or in the contract, and neither were provided here. And Louisiana does not uh, have any uh, acceptance of the bad faith ex exception. Well, Mr. Barham, does, does Louisiana recognize any inherent right of a trial court judge to impose sanctions on... No. Uh, parties for uh, conduct of litigation? Uh, the only ones, Your Honor, are the ones that are in the higher tiers, like contempt, those kind of, of inherent powers which have, as you know, generally across the country, they have been put into legislative form. But it's that high tier of inherent power that is recognized, and that only, not the necessary uh, useful, in a sense of useful, only those necessary for the court to carry out its functions. So, so if an attorney knowingly introduced perjured testimony or falsified doc, documents in a Louisiana state court, uh, the Louisiana state court could impose monetary sanctions? The Louisiana state court could under its, uh, uh, its the fact that all lawyers are in, a, in, in an integrated bar and therefore the court rules the lawyers, they could take care of the lawyers under that power that's given to them as a court. They could take care of them, of them under a criminal charge uh, referral. They can take care of them under a contempt or fine. They do not have a, a fee shifting 
Well, but they could impose monetary sanctions, I take it, measured by the amount of the attorney's fees incurred by the injured party? Under your no cases. Under your first inherent power explanation? Under the, under the contempt? Under I, 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 don't, I, I don't believe, uh, I, I, I don't believe Louisiana has that power. I, I question even whether the fine for contempt could carry with it, even under federal law, I would have to say, I question even whether it could carry attorney's fees that, that were attended upon the fine in federal law. But we do not recognize the bad faith exception uh, for shifting attorney's fees, and we do... Uh, well, this case, of course, was tried in federal court. Yes, under diversity, not under a federal question. Right. And you take the position that the federal court has no inherent powers to control what goes on in the litigation in its court? No. I, I say that it has inherent powers, and those have been defined uh, in uh, Alaska. Uh, Justice White uh, discussed uh, the inherent power in, uh, in question uh, about a pot to be divided. Well, haven't we said in Alaska and Roadway effectively that a federal court has inherent power to impose monetary sanctions for bad faith litigation in its court? But you've also said it very clearly in Alaska that not for that uh, not in diversity. That's the, the, the footnote. The footnote, the footnote, the famous footnote. Yes, ma'am. Well, aren't you reading something into that footnote that might not be there? Well, I read it as in an ordinary diversity case where the state law does not run counter to a valid federal statute or rule of court, a state denying the right to attorney's fees, which reflects a substantial policy of the state, should be followed. Well, why doesn't that just mean in an ordinary fee-shifting situation where you have to determine whether a cause of action carries with it uh, fee-shifting and attorney's fees, and the state doesn't allow it, we're not going to impose it in the federal court sitting in diversity. What does that footnote have to do with any inherent power situation? of the federal court to control bad practices going on in its courtroom. I don't see that that footnote has anything to do with that. Well, may it please your honor, it is a footnote to an exception to the general American rule against fee shifting, which is the bad faith exception, which means bad faith, vexatious conduct during litigation. So if it's attached to that footnote, I would assume, Justice White speaking for the court, intended that that would be a meaning carried down into that footnote, which is very clear and plain and goes on to say the same would clearly hold for a judicially created rule, which is the inherent power. Mr. Baum, in a diversity case, suppose a lawyer was in obvious contempt of the court would the court be denied the right to punish him because it was a diversity case? No. There are so many ways to punish him. You now have, I believe there are 12 uh, sanctions in the rules. There is 28, uh, for the lawyer, there is 28-19-27. But isn't it true that once the lawyer is in the federal court, as to his 
conduct is controlled by federal and not state. Is that right or wrong? The conduct is conduct in the presence of the federal court. I would have to agree it is. It is. And in this case, the, uh, we went through the merit trial. There was a judgment for specific performance. The Fifth Circuit set this for argument, and in the midst of arguments, set the, placed the lawyers at ease and immediately imposed sanctions for a frivolous appeal. In the whole process of the merit trial, there was one sanction imposed, and that was a contempt sanction for violation of an order of court imposed on the client. That was the early part of the proceeding. It went two, more, two years and nothing else happened. The Fifth Circuit said that they would uh, hold uh, double costs and attorney's fees as sanctions for the frivolous appeal, and it remanded to the district court saying, would you look for uh, casting costs or attorney's fees under Rule 11 on the client and attorneys or under 28 U.S.C. 1927 for the attorneys. And when it went back to the district court, uh, before we got to that, there was a motion to, to indicate some of the, 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 the extent of damages in this case, which are not really permitted except for economic. There was a motion for assistance before we got to, the, uh, to this motion. And the district court, in that motion for assistance, ordered $2 million worth of assets, equipment, that had been added to the television station since the list was made up for what would be transferred to also be transferred for the same consideration. Then NASCO, the respondent, urged the court to reject Rule 11 and reject 28-19-27 and to go to the inherent power. And that court said, we find and agree with the parties to this sanctioning proceeding, that's NASCO, that Federal Rule Civil Procedure 11 does not furnish a basis for the consideration of the sanctionable acts alleged by NASCO. We find that Federal Rule Civil Procedure 11 for the levying of sanctions at this time, at the time of the appellate court's decree on August 6, 1986, and at the time of the acts themselves were committed to be insufficient for our purposes here. So what happened is you have them rejecting any conduct uh, that could be sanctioned under 11, and none was sanctioned under 11 during the proceedings, and none was sanctioned under 1927 during the proceedings. It was only after the Court of Appeal jogged the mind of the district court judge that you may impose sanctions that it came into being, and almost two years later, that's after the appeal, those sanctions were imposed. And what happened is one lawyer was disbarred for three years, one lawyer was suspended for five years, one for six months, and they're not before this court. And then one million dollars of attorney's fees, more or less, were imposed on the client, given to the movement. Suppose, uh, suppose, uh, Mr. Barham, the, uh, there was a federal statute which, uh, which uh, said uh, that in diversity cases, the uh, federal court has inherent power to impose, uh, to shift attorney's fees uh, as a sanction for uh, bad faith conduct during trial. Would that statute be invalid? 
That's uh, what you were kind of considering yesterday, and we got copies of, of this opinion. When you're looking under the rules of uh, uh, the, the Enabling Act, uh, you know, that's, to me, different. Uh, well, it's an eerie case, uh, diversity. It's an eerie case whether it's under the rule or whether it's under a statute. Oh, or well, what? I mean, it's a diversity case, I say. It's a diversity yes. case. Uh, and I suppose the same, whatever answer you give to that question, I suppose you'd give the same question if there was a rule of court. Yes, sir. First, you'd have to examine, is the rule within the Enabling Act, mm -hmm. or is the rule constitutional? That's, that's the only thing. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, the, the famous footnote in Alyeska said that uh, we're a state law that does not run counter to a valid federal statute. Then all this follows. But... Uh, I suppose if there was a statute like that, your, uh, sta your, uh, what you're urging would be counter to a federal statute, uh, and then the question would be whether it was valid. I think that's what you would have to, to, to look to, and I don't believe you would hold that valid. My understanding of this court's approach to the rule... Well, you, you would if you thought it was just a procedural housekeeping matter. Well, procedural housekeeping is hardly what you said is applicable to fee shifting when that's state policy. That is state policy, that we don't believe that, that people should pay other people's attorney's fees. We believe that's a cost of doing business, and we don't agree that other persons ought to be made to pay attorney's fees. It makes coming to court uh, less desirable. It has a chilling effect. Well, what, what Mr. Barn, if, if the court had simply held your client in contempt, and find him this amount of money, and said, I'm going to find you an amount equivalent to the attorney's fees. If you pay that into the court, I only can question the amount. But it was, I, I can't question your power. Uh, and what, even if it, what if it were done as a form of civil contempt, where, where you would presumably pay the money to the other side? If it's under contempt, I don't know that what I, I, I'm not sure that I could agree that I would I would not have to argue against that. The fee shifting is what bothers me because there is such a very strong policy consideration not only in Louisiana but in most states against fee uh, distribution by a court. It is determined by either the legislation or the parties themselves if there's going to be fee shifting. This, this isn't fee shifting, as I understand what the Fifth Circuit did here, or the district court, simply because you've lost a case in, in the English tradition of fee shifting. This is fee shifting, if that's what you call because of very bad behavior during the course of litigation. But it's Don't you see some difference? Well, it's also outcome involved, because only the loser is going to get this fee shift. Yes, Only the loser. but the great majority of losers won't get it. Only losers who behave the way your client did. Well, but it does run counter to that outcome look on the area. Why, why is it that only the loser will ever get it? You, you, don't, don't you think that a winner in the course of winning could have... Uh, could, I don't could believe have you can shift. Could have, could have had such outrageous conduct that the, that the court can... Which causes additional expenses to the other side, even though he wins. And the that, court can say, you know, in the course of getting there, you, uh, you violated the rules. That is not the concept of the equity power 
the equity inherent power for shifting fees. The concept is that you make whole the party who is the victor. So the loser always pays the victor pockets. Yeah, but as the Chief Justice suggested, maybe, maybe we're not talking about that power. Maybe we're talking about some different power, which is the power of the court to protect itself from being imposed on by the parties, to protect its processes. If you don't use one of the rule powers, which are so numerous now, and cover every piece of conduct, in fact, despite the statement by the court, if you read what he enumerates as, as the conduct, it could have been sanctioned at the time under Rule 11. But what if Rule 11 only applies to signed pleadings? Rule 11 applies to signed pleadings. There will almost, I mean, litigation begins, proceeds, uh, the discovery, everything is with signed pleadings, as, as in this case as in every other case. Your only complaint is that it was shifting of a fee. If it had just been a charge of that amount of money, you wouldn't be complaining. I, I would be complaining, but if you did it under your... But I mean, what's the magic of shifting fees? There's no magic to that. You're being punished for doing wrong. There is a general American rule which says it is wrong to shift fees. Well, if he gives the same amount of money and says in the order, this is not a shift in the fee, would you have a complaint? If, if it's going to be contempt... If the fee is $15,000, and the court says for the harm that you have done by your misconduct, you must pay $15,000, but this is not a shift in the fees, would you be complaining? Is it going to be paid to the court? Sir? Is it going to be paid to the court? Yes. Then I, have, I cannot complain. Then you wouldn't be complaining. I complain about the amount. You, oh, yeah. Well, then you would just complain. <laughs> but uh, you, you uh, concede that substantially all of the conduct here uh, could be sanctionable under Rule 11. This court could have sanctioned if it thought it necessary any time. This court never lost control of this case. This court had full control throughout the proceedings and it carried it through to the very end without any difficulty whatsoever. It was only when the Court of Appeal imposed the frivolous... Well, set, set that aside. All right, sir. Uh, the district court had a very extensive opinion detailing uh, the misconduct by the attorney uh, concurred in, if not directed, by the client. And I thought you agreed that substantially all of that conduct, if it did in fact occur, was sanctionable under Rule 11. I have to, I have to take back, if I said that, I have to take it back to this extent. Much of the conduct was pre-trial, pre-petition conduct, as it's discussed by the court. Well, it then did. there is some it litigation. It was a Friday, Saturday, Sunday conduct that led up to a pleading yes. that was filed in, in, in the following week. Then the litigation conduct, And I, and I yes. think you were uh, correct to say that this is within the ambit of Rule 11. Yes, Well, then why can't we just affirm based on the fact that it, uh, the judge could have made these findings under Rule 11? I have trouble with a district court rejecting your federal rule and reaching for inherent power because the Rule well, 11... We'll say, we'll say he's right in finding that there was wrongful conduct. 
He just found the wrong rule. Rule 11 would have served just fine, and so we affirm. Or at least remand it, tell him to impose a sanction under Rule 11 if he chooses. Well, in your dissent yesterday, you had trouble with even the discreet act shifting of, of attorney's fees. But and you don't is, need to have that trouble because the majority opinion ruled to the contrary. <laughs> but this was not a, a, a discreet act. This was a massive imposition of an amount of money, not accountable act by act by act by act. I don't know what I got. Well, I, there was no deterrence. There was no flag waving any time during this, like your rules are, to say, don't do this, and if you do, I will punish because you didn't see the flag. What we have is punishment for punishment's sake. We have a, 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 a vindication, if you will, or uh, it's, it is totally without regard to the deterrence upon future litigants or attorneys. Or I, even thought, I thought in this record it disclosed that the district court gave notice at several times during the proceedings that sanctions were being contemplated if certain behavior when, uh, Mr. continued. When, uh, Mr. when there was a publication of some article in regard to sanctions, he called it to the attention of counsel, is my understanding. When uh, Mr. McCabe from Massachusetts came in and was not associated with counsel before he got in the courtroom, he was... Uh, 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 somewhat uh, lectured and then told that his conduct would have to be up to par, but he had not even been there before. Uh, I'm trying to think of another instance. That's all I can think of other than the one instance of the contempt for violation of an order. And what is so befuddling to me is that the conduct of the trial did not disturb the judge until it it was over. It went to its conclusion fairly well. And he never had need for this. When he ordered something, it happened. When they were at the FCC and he told them to uh, not be at the FCC, they removed themselves. Orders were all that he needed. It always seemed to me that the least that you have to do to control a court is the most effective control. And the more quickly you control the court and that you keep it in order, the better order you have. There is no order in court when you only tell them after court is through, you did wrong. It is the manner in which you conduct the court during the trial, during the argument, during the hearing, which is conducive to the good conduct in the court. And that's why the rules generally say it must be timely. You say it has to be the discreet or that act. I mean, don't, don't at least some of our cases dealing with contempt committed in the presence of the court during the trial say that it's better for the, the court to perhaps wait till the trial is over, rather than just do it instantaneously, kind of perhaps in the heat of passion. I believe what, it, what, what we do, though, is we say, I hold you in contempt, but you wait to impose that, that contempt put penalty fine or other. But I think you give they notice. Defer the penalty. Yes, sir. It's, it's the penalty. It's not that I want you to know you passed the, the red flag in my court. You're in contempt. But you don't necessarily have to impose the penalty. Then that would be, it's time consuming. It's much like this, this breeding of, of, of a lot of different litigation when you go into this inherent power and you have no restrictions on it. I say, one, that in a diversity case you can't have it. 
I say, two, you can't have this kind. You wouldn't permit this kind of sanction. Not a sanction. You wouldn't permit this kind of fee shifting. There is no rule to permit it. The rule is against this fee shifting. The general American rule says you don't uh, shift fees. And, and yesterday, you, both the majority and the minority, discussed very much the, the interference uh, with the, uh, uh, the whole uh, procedure and all the things that happen from it. Uh, you're, you're dealing with uh, Aliasco, if it please your honor, uh, was that we don't have to apply Aliasco, look to it here, because that was under the court's inherent power, not the Rules Enabling Act. And then you found three reasons that it, it did not constitute a kind of fee shift at issue in Aliasco. And one, it was not tied to the outcome of the litigation. And two, uh, it, it, it did not shift the entire cost of get the litigation only for the discrete event. And then finally, it wasn't necessarily a fee-shifting statute. It wasn't because it was uh, had no movement, had no entitlement to fees or other sanction. Uh, uh, explained in Cooter versus Gale, inciting that. Then, uh, what I understand, uh, uh, Justice uh, Kennedy, is that any mechanism for redistributing costs, even the inherent sanctioning authority of the federal court, has the potential to affect decisions concerning whether and where to file suit. If we get to there, we can't get past Erie. You cannot use the inherent power in an Erie case. You can't use it in a rules of decision case. Whether you can do it in the, under the Enabling Act, I have my problems, but I don't have to address that, but because we have no rules here. You have a judge-made law, and that law comes peculiarly from almost nowhere, out of the Atkinson case, which didn't deal and own up, and finally is inherent power. But I do not say there is not inherent power, and the court doesn't need inherent power. It does not need this, nor can a federal court sitting in Louisiana, Texas, or wherever, if they don't have fee awarding, a federal court can't make a, a decision like this, which is outcome uh, 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 dictating a million dollars worth of sanction when a court across the street see, sitting as a state court could not do the same. And if that won't take in forum shopping, if that won't be an inequitable... Is there practice, any case you can give us which says, quote, Rule 11 does not apply in diversity cases, end quote? Rule 11 does... Apply. Does not... Does apply. In any case they said... Rule 11 does not apply to diversity cases. No, sir. No, sir. And in you fact, want some new law? No, sir. Rule 11, as I understand it, does apply in diversity because it, it fits the category of everything I'm saying. It's not this kind of inherent power. It is not a fee shifting. It is taking care of its sanctions, its deterrence. This was not deterrence. This was not sanctions. This was punitive, retributive. I, I suggest there's a difference. Rule 11, I believe, applies in diversity cases, as it's been enunciated by this court. I don't think you'll have a problem applying it, as you enunciated it yesterday. Uh, Mr. Justice Kennedy, you went on to say that it's not the business of this court to prescribe rules re redistributing litigation costs in a manner that discourages good faith attempts to vindicate rights granted by substantive law. 
and the allocation of costs accruing from litigation is a matter for the legislature, not the courts. Our potential incursion into matters reserved to the states also counsel against adoptions. Well, that, that point of view didn't carry the day yesterday. Well, he didn't. He didn't. But he is, he, he is quoting a fear that I think every member of the court, including the majority, did have a feel for it. I don't believe the majority was disregarding a thought, does this have any encouragement on states? And as enunciated, I don't have a problem with Rule 11 being applied in a diversity case. Thank you. You, you would like to reserve the remainder of your time, Mr. Brown. Uh, very well, Mr. Klein. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. The question in this case is whether Petitioner was improperly sanctioned for his bad faith litigation conduct. We submit that he wasn't based on the following analysis. First, the authority to oppose attorneys' fees for abusing the court's processes is clearly one of the several inherent sanctioning powers that federal courts possess, in this court's words, for the specific purpose of managing their affairs so as to achieve the orderly and expeditious disposition of cases. Second, that kind of sanctioning power, by definition, protects core judicial process concerns and therefore applies in diversity cases just as it applies in all other cases. And third, the district court didn't abuse its discretion in this case in setting the amount of petitioner's sanction to reflect the full cost of respondents' attorney's fees. That determination properly rested on the factual finding that petitioner's entire litigation effort was designed to obstruct, impede, and indeed prevent judicial resolution of respondents' claim in the belief that through fraud, delay, harassment, and increasing legal fees, respondent would abandon its claim. And at some point during your argument, Mr. Klein, uh, perhaps we could discuss and you could tell me uh, why the district court uh, couldn't have done all of this, or substantially all of it, under Rule 11. I'm very troubled by that. It, it's, it seems to me that Rule 11 classically covers this conduct. Well, Your Honor, I think there are, are two points that I'd like to say. First of all, I, I would agree with the point you made before. That is, if this conduct was all sanctionable under Rule 11 and the district court simply invoked the wrong rule, then I think the case ought to be affirmed on that basis. I will suggest to you why I think the court thought that he could not, and that is, I think there has been some dispute among the circuits about just how far Rule 11 applies in terms of signings and parties, also in terms of, for example, in this case, there was a fabrication of a fraud, as he pointed out ahead of t uh, in the uh, other argument. There's a fabrication of a fraud designed to mislead and abuse the court. Now, in that situation, a lot of events occurred that were, in some respects, reflective of a pleading, but not necessarily. And so I think the court was simply being cautious, given the fact that the circuits have had a more limited view of Rule 11. And I would suggest the majority did suggest yesterday that Rule 11 had a kind of discrete power analysis rather than a generic. But Rule 11 certainly is basically limited to filed papers. That is my understanding of it, and I think the behavior here went far beyond filed papers. So if, if the court below had been limited to Rule 11, it could not have imposed the, extensive, the, the extent of sanctions that it did. I think that is correct. I think that is, there, it, it applies to particular filings, and I think there would be limits on what the court could have 
uh, awarded here. However, I don't want to be in a position of suggesting that something close to this award isn't sustainable on Rule 11. I think the court was right in putting it on the power that he did have. And I think, and I think the, that you're right, Mr. Chief Justice, in pointing out that I think this court and certainly the circuit courts have taken a more limited view of what Rule 11 is addressed to. After all, it's only one of several sanctions in the course of the entire rules directed at a particular phase in the proceedings. Mr. Klein, there's, there's another problem besides the fact that uh, Rule 11 only applies to, per- to particular filed papers. There's also the problem that, uh, as, as, as I read Rule 11, um, there has to be some assessment of, of how much harm the particular filing caused to the other side. And the award here was, was all the attorney's fees, wasn't it? it was, yes, did, it was. Did the court seek to calculate what incremental additional attorney's fees were caused by... Uh, I believe he did. And that's what I think the essential finding is, Justice Scalia. That is, I think this determination rests on a finding that the whole effort, that what, what the petitioner set out to do is to say, look... When we go to court, we are going to tie this process in knots. We are going to use every abusive power. By the time they sort this out, there's going to be a million dollars worth of fees, and many years later, this guy will cave. I think the district court found that, yeah. the Court of Appeals affirmed it, and I think that it should Well, they might have had that in mind, but that's quite different from saying <clears throat> that this amount of damage was caused by these particular abuses. They might have wanted you know, had willfully in mind to run up attorney's fees through abuses and through non-abuses. But what Rule 11 says is that it can, in order to pay the other party, the amount of the reasonable expenses incurred because of the filing. Well, that's that's what I was suggesting I thought before. That is, I think the consequences of of what Rule 11 would allow you to recover are more limited. Why why don't we, uh, why shouldn't we take Rule 11 as being a, um, a limitation upon the way the more general discretion of the court to impose uh, 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 costs. Uh, you, you acknowledge the court, or you assert that the court has an inherent power. If it does, why shouldn't we think that that inherent power has been limited by Rule 11? Well, I think so that you can't shift fees, but you can only require the other side to pay the amount of the fees that are attributable to the misconduct. I want to say two points, Justice Scalia, because I may have confused it first. I think this award is based on the amount of fees attributable to the misconduct. I, I, I think that's what the district court found and clearly was affirmed by the Court of Appeals. The, the misconduct before the court? The misconduct before the court, the contempt of courts that were held. In other words, there was misconduct in the FCC, but that was in contempt in violation of the court's order. Everybody recognized that. It wasn't that those were extraneous proceedings. There was a TRO that was outstanding when he violated it. There was a a, uh, preliminary injunction that was outstanding. Every bit of this behavior was not for the purpose that courts are open for, and that is to resolve legal disputes. Every bit of it was to frustrate and thwart the court's effort at doing that. He litigated for three years over a series of counterclaims and affirmative defenses on the eve of trial, voluntarily, after this whole process, he stipulates that the contract was valid, that he had no defense to the contract, and that we had not violated the contract. That, I think, is the essential finding, and I think that's the basis that this Court should affirm on. Now, I think the second issue, to the extent, let let me say, I, I don't want to be in this box. If Rule 11 is coextensive with this inherent power, based on that fact finding, 
then I think I am perfectly happy to have the court rest the judgment on Rule 11. I would also say the inherent power, if it awarded Justice Scalia for legitimate fees, that is, it didn't, it, it used, so to speak, a sledgehammer when a more careful approach would be necessary, I don't think that would be a prudent and might indeed be an abuse of discretion of the inherent power. So I don't want to get into the box of trying to argue which particular sanction, because well, I think Mr. Klein, I think perhaps you ought to, uh, because uh, I think Justice Scalia's question to you was, why doesn't Rule 11 limit inherent power? My question to you is, Take a look at Section 1927. In June of 1980, this Court decided in Roadway that 1927 did not extend to the imposition of attorney's fees. In September of 1980, Congress comes along and amends 1927 and says, yes, it does. Now, was that just brutum fulmen on the part of Congress? I mean, could could the Court have done whatever it wanted under inherent powers anyway? I, I, th- I think inherent powers may disappear as, or as Congress steps in, or as the rules commit. Well, let, let, me, let me answer it this way. First of all, there were two aspects to roadway, Mr. Chief Justice. The initial aspect was the inherent sanctioning power against parties. That was what the court built upon to extend to attorneys. Now, that's, then subsequent to that, this court, uh, Congress, as you point out, amended 1927 to cover parties. And I would say, quite frankly, that 1927, as I read it, is coextensive with the roadway power that was applied to attorneys. However, this other power in roadway, which I think traces back much earlier, for example, to Chief Justice uh, Taft's opinion in Toledo Scale, that power Congress has never touched. It has not amended. It has not changed. Second, the court is also clear in Link versus Wabash, Justice Harlan's opinion, he says when Congress or the rulemakers want to limit or eliminate an inherent power, one that this court has recognized, it has to speak with unmistakable clarity. Now, Congress, certainly in, in passing 1927, never suggested, never suggested that it was attempting to divest uh, the federal courts of their ability to sanction parties. 1927 is purely attorneys. And second of all, the rulemakers, when they amended Rule 11 in 1983, flat out said they were, quote, building on and expanding the inherent power recognized in roadway. So it seems to me... If the power was already there, why did the rulemakers fuss with it at all? They, they, they made it, they imposed a higher standard. What the rulemakers did in 1983, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, is that they said, under the inherent power, you need to have a showing of bad faith subjective bad faith. We are now imposing a higher standard on counsel and, as, uh, as the court has found, on parties to require more of an objective. That was what the rule did. So the inherent power only went to one state of mind. To get to another state of mind, you had to have legislation. Precisely. That's Precisely. a strange definition of inherent power. Well, the inherent power, I think, was a more limited one. It was, for frankly, I think, the concerns that were articulated in, in, in the uh, opinion yesterday. That is, that the inherent power was saying, if you act in bad faith, you intentionally misuse the processes of this court, the court needs that power to defend itself, to protect its integrity and to protect its processes. That is the scope of it. That was what was applied here. Now. I, I think that's unequivocal in Roadway. I mean, I think what Roadway says, and it seems to me this is the, the key to the holding, that there are inherent powers governed not by rule or statute, 
but by the control necessarily, necessarily vested in courts to manage their affairs. And it seems to me, if that's the power we're talking about, then it must be clear, it must be clear it applies in diversity cases, just as it does in all other federal cases. For example, the conduct that was condemned in Roadway itself, those abuses, is it conceivable that the court would have said that they were not sanctionable in a case that was based on 1332 rather than 1331? That's not at all possible. And let me suggest when we're dealing with, as I think Justice Marshall pointed out before, we're dealing with the court running its business. That is such a core concern that it seems to me, even if a state thinks that a different set of powers is appropriate in its court, that you don't need this power. If the federal courts have made that determination, the state has no legitimate interest, cognizable under Erie or any other doctrine, that would divest the federal courts of that power, just as it has no interest that would allow them to take away the full measure of contempt power, even if they insisted different contempt proceedings were held in their courts, or the power recognized in Link v. Wabash to dismiss a case sua sponte, even if they had a different view in their courts. Now, I think to some degree, I just want to point out a couple of other uh, quick points here, but I think Petitioner is confusing a variety of different powers, and I will be the first to concede that federal courts have lots of powers that are not clearly defined either by statute or by the Constitution. For example, the power to invoke an injunction or deny an injunction in an equitable case. And I admit, each of those powers presents its own individual eerie question. But I would suggest that while some of those powers raise complex eerie questions, a power that this Court has found as a fundamental sanctioning power to control the processes presents a very simple eerie question. And as I think Justice O'Connor has amply pointed out, I don't think anything in Alyeska was intended to detract from that point whatsoever. Petitioner's reliance on Alyeska, it seems to me, confuses two very different bases of authority for directing a party to pay fees. One is to impose sanctions on an abusive limit, a litigant. That's the power at issue in this case. Now, there's another power, and that is the power to shift fees to a prevailing party, having nothing to do with whether that party abused the process or not. And that power has substantive impact in the following ways. It either is designed to br encourage bringing certain kind of litigation, or frankly, it may be designed to discourage certain kind of conduct. That kind of power, we acknowledge, is probably substantive under Erie, and that's the kind of power, by citing the Sioux City case in this footnote, that the court had in mind in Alyeska. Alyeska itself had nothing to do with judicial sanctioning powers. Alyeska was concerned pure and simple with basic prevailing party situations. Finally, if I can just take a moment. Before you get to that, um, because it relates to the point you've been talking about, as I read the uh, district court opinion, which, uh, which calculated the amount of, of this award, much of that was not only not based upon how much specific harm had been caused, but it was not even entirely based upon conduct before the court. As I read the district court opinion, part of, part of what they say, uh, it's page 51 of the appendix, 
Chambers and Gray, um, Chambers, knowing that NASCO had a good and valid contract, hired Gray to find a defense and arbitrarily refused to perform. In other words, I think that there, some of these sanctions are indeed the substantive type sanctions you're talking about. Well, with respect, At the district court level, anyway. With respect, Your Honor, I'll disagree with that, and if I might explain. That is to say, it is, it is the fact that Gray was hired by Chambers didn't lead to the imposition of any fees in and of itself by, to our client. What the court has sanctioned this person for is saying, look, you came into my court. The first thing you did was you tried to defraud me by suggesting you had made a bona fide sale and therefore preventing uh, specific performance. That didn't happen. That was a fraud. You misled me and you misled the public. You registered certain recordation papers that claimed to be a cash sale. Now, everything that happened, Justice Scalia, grew out of that process and the courts, except for one exception which I'll come to, and the courts basically saying in that situation, look, we understand what went on here. You never showed up to resolve a legal claim. Didn't happen. You showed up to tie this process in knots. I'm not going to tolerate it. The one exception that I think is for out-of-court conduct has to do with the violations of the orders. That is to say, to the extent it's a standard power. If he, if he goes to the FCC and seeks to change the status quo, that is a standard contempt remedy, and the court clearly could have done it on that basis. We're... we're um 100% of the uh, fees uh, awarded as sanctions? 100% of the fees were awarded as sanctions, yes, Your Honor. And uh, was, is there a finding, either implicit or explicit, that Chambers, the client, uh, directed 100% of that conduct? I think that the finding was that Chambers, explicit finding, that Chambers was the engineer that is, he was the strategist and the lawyer was a tactician. And that is to say, there may be individual motions that were filed, defenses that were raised, that were designed by the lawyers. <coughs> but what the district court found was that was part of Chambers' overall plan to misuse this litigation, to delay, harass, and impose fees on, on our client. And I think that's what the Court of Appeals affirmed. Mr. Klein, I'm not sure the district court statement at least uh, bears, bears the reading you're giving it. I mean, the district court says that the, uh, the full amount of $996,000... Where are you reading from? It's from A52, uh, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, it, it says that the, uh, uh, the full amount is 996000 This sum is exclusive and does not include fees and expenses awarded by the court in the contempt proceedings. Okay. It does include, however, $53,000 in attorney's fees and expenses paid by NASCO for services rendered in connection with the sanctions portion of the suit. This latter portion of the fees and expenses, the district court says, like the balance of such fees and expenses included in the sanctions, like the balance, would not have been incurred by NASCO if Chambers had not defaulted and forced NASCO to bring this suit. Well, now, what he's saying, it seems to me, is that Chambers is a bad actor. He knew he didn't have a leg to stand on in the contract, and he forced the thing to go to litigation. That's, that's not the contempt si uh, type uh, uh, sanction. That I, don't, I don't think that's right. I, I would refer to the court first. I, I want to comment to that specific language, but I would refer to the court on page A51. He says the sanctions assigned established in this Whereabouts on A51? A51 at the bottom of the first incompleted paragraph. The sanctions assigned and established in this paragraph, these are the sanctions against uh, Chambers, apply only to sanctional acts 
which occurred in connection with proceedings in the trial court. Court of Appeals affirmed on page A79, says, finally, Chambers contends the amount of the sanction was an abuse of discretion. We disagree. NASCO's expenses throughout this litigation were without exception the product of Chambers' bad faith tactics. The, the award reflects the amount of these expenses. And I would suggest to you, Justice Scalia, he could have sat back and made us sue him. But once he showed up in court, if he has no defenses, he can't defraud the court, and he can't play games, and he can't manufacture defenses. That, I think, is a difference. You have to pay the lawyer at least 50 bucks for showing up to move for summary judgment. I mean, you've got to subtract something. You're clearly penalizing him for forcing a lawsuit to be filed. He's entitled to force a lawsuit to be filed. He only has to be an honest man once he gets before the court, as far as sanctions are concerned. I agree with that, and if, if the argument is it's an abuse of discretion not to deduct the cost of the complaint, I really don't think that, that under these circumstances, given the pervasiveness and given the sanctioning power, it is, after all, primarily a deterrent remedy, not a compensatory. But the omission of that, you know, it, it suggests that the court wasn't, didn't have its eye on the ball. It isn't just the $50 I'm worried about. It casts the whole, the whole sum into, into doubt. But I'd like to discuss that with you, because I, I think that is wrong, and I think the record couldn't be clear about it. And the reason I think that's wrong is he starts out, let's look at what, he, what, what took these proceedings so long. He starts out by a clear fraud, intentionally designed to, to abuse and mislead the court. That's indisputable. All right. That, now, then we have two years of discovery on affirmative defenses, okay, as well as on, on uh, counterclaims that he files which are, are really just completely manufactured. They're frivolous. Then we have endless motions for stays. Then we have a recusal. We finally get a trial date. He files a recusal motion before the district court. Mendamus is him in the Court of Appeals. Now, I suggest to the court, what went on that was the business of the litigation in this two-year process? The whole time he's doing depositions, he takes depositions of people in Boston about whether we could finance the deal or not. The whole time he's pursuing his counterclaims, the whole time that he's pursuing his affirmative defenses, fees are running up. The night before trial, literally, he says, oh, all of that, I stipulate away. What's left? What's his whole defense? It's his fraudulent defense, which the Fifth Circuit found was so offensive that they, firm, uh, they affirmed from the bench, sanctioned him, and described his conduct as manipulative. That was the only issue when all this was sorted out, and none of the other issues, none of the other issues, he even thought were meritorious enough to proceed to trial. So I suggest to the court that everything he did, and I think that finding is absolutely safe on this record, everything he did was an abuse of the process. I think his strategy was clear, and it almost succeeded. He said if he can tie these guys up in knots, these are not people with a lot of means. If I can tie them up in knots, they'll cave. They'll give in. And I think that's intolerable, and I thought the court was exactly right in sanctioning it, and I would urge this court to affirm it. Is the rule you propose that if a fraud is designed for specific judicial proceedings, uh, that that is within the inherent power Absolutely. of the court? Absolutely. That is what's called by this court in universal oil, perpetration of, a perpetration of a fraud on the court, and that is what this was. Yes, Your Honor. Mr. Klein, if... A, court, a court's inherent power uh, is limited by the necessity to protect itself. 
and if a court has available to it sanctions under Rule 11 that cover at least a portion of this conduct, why should we not require the court to at least determine uh, what of this conduct is is uh, covered by Rule 11? Well, I guess I think that the, the answer in part to that, Justice. Because I'm not sure. Only then do we know whether it's necessary to resort to inherent power. Isn't that right? Well, well it, seems to, it seems to me that there are two parts to that. That is, if Rule 11, as I said, is coextensive with this power, then it's not necessary. If it's not, then I suggest it is, because there are abuses that will go unredressed. I, I don't think it can be an either-or. Well, we don't know. Apparently, the district court did not take up the Fifth Circuit on its suggestion that it sort out what could be sanctioned under Rule 11. Well, that's great. And the Fifth Circuit didn't do that. And so we don't know, really. But, but I guess what, what, I, what I, I, I... And I didn't understand that. your answer to be very clear in telling us whether every single dollar imposed here could have been imposed under a Rule 11 sanction. The reason my answer is, is less than clear about that, Your Honor, frankly, is because this Court hasn't ruled on those kinds of issues and the circuits are split. That's the reason my, my, my answer is somewhat unclear. But I would suggest to the Court... And, and, and perhaps I haven't put this properly, but I would suggest to the court that it seems to me Rule 11 was designed for a more narrow purpose, relating primarily to pleadings, and that it was, as, as the court said yesterday, concerned with discrete events. There are, after all, sanctions under Rule 56. Well, so your best reading of Rule 11 is to the effect that it did not cover all the conduct here. That is my best reading of it. Well, that wasn't, uh, that wasn't the rationale of the Court of Appeals, was it? It was not the rationale. Are you defending the rationale of the Court of Appeals? I am Appeals? defending fully the rationale. Well, they, say, they said that uh, the Rule 11 just doesn't replace uh, uh, the inherent power to any extent. That, that is their view. I happen to agree with their view. Well, uh, yeah. But, it, but if, if what I'm saying, Justice White... Well, could I ask you, do you, do you think that, that presented here is the question of the relationship between Rule 11 and inherent power? I, I don't believe that's a fairly presented question. The question here is whether he had the power, the inherent power. I think the answer on roadway is yes, and if he exercised that properly... You don't think the questions presented here are really... Uh, uh, subsume the question of whether Rule 11 uh, or the statute limits inherent power? Uh, the question is very broadly presented. I wouldn't say the court was barred from reaching the question based on the question it's presented, but I think it's clear Rule 11 doesn't. And the reason I think it's clear is because the rule itself expressly states it's expanding and building upon in no way contracting, and it seems to me, at worst, the two powers are coextensive. And if they are, the, the District Court and the Court of Appeals acted entirely properly in placing it on the inherent power rather than Rule 11. If the two powers are not coextensive, then it seems to me that the inherent power being broader is necessary in the sense that this Court found it necessary in roadway. Thank you, Mr. Chief. Thank you, Mr. Klein. Mr. Barham, do you have rebuttal? You have two minutes remaining. Uh, quickly, in regard to the rules, not only Rule 11, 11, 16F, 26G, 30G, 1 and 2, 37A, 37B, 37B, 1 and 2, 37C, uh, on and on are rules that govern conduct. And in this case, the rules 
work by the, by the Fifth Circuit said not to have anything to do with inherent power. You don't have to use the rules. Sit back. They don't have to mitigate. Let them sit back and let them amass attorney's fees and waste the court's time, then hit him. Hit him with inherent power. And that's just not the way the games should be played in this court, not the way the rules envision it, not the way this court envisions it. Moreover, there's not one fact in the entire record that Chambers design a fraud upon the court is a conclusion that he participated in everything and in the design, but the only fact is his statement that I didn't want to sell. I thought it was in the best interest of the public and me not to go through with it. I was willing to pay damages. I asked the lawyers, can I pay damages and, and not sell? The lawyers said yes, and they devised the plan, and I questioned the plan. I thought it might be a legal trick, but they persuaded me, and must have persuaded him pretty good because he kept running his business at the tune of an extra two million investment over the time of the litigation. The other thing is they wait three years to even bring their motion for sanctions after the Court of Appeals said do it. Thank you, Mr. Barham. Your time has expired. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock.